From grain to glass, this show is dedicated to helping you make the best beer possible. So strap in and hold on to your mash tons. We're Homebrew Bound. Welcome to Homebrew Bound. I'm Casey. And I'm Brian. This is the best beer show on the internet. Yep. Before I get too deep, I want to give a big shout out to the American Homebrewers Association. They do a lot of support homebrewing and homebrewers, and now they support us. During the AHA, we'll give you uh, discounts at homebrew shops and select tap rooms, as well as give you access to the fantastic Zymergy magazine. Click on the furl link at the bottom of our homepage, and, or use blind-ninja-studios at checkout, and join today. I also want to give a big shout out to... Our patrons, specifically our Black Belt patrons, Andy Thompson, Bjorn Bjornson, Hoppen Barrel Brewing, Brian Bryanson, Devin Stinson, Phil Feldman, and Tyler Romanski. If you'd like to become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash blinderstudios or click on the patron link on our homepage at blinderstudios.com and join today. Brian. What have you been up to, beer-related, my friends? Nothing. Oh, that was... Literally, that was nothing. very anticlimactic. It's been two weeks since we recorded, and you haven't done anything. Okay, we went to I went to Zymergy Brewery with Gordon. That's in uh, Menominee, right? Yeah, with Gordon and um, Stephen Joel, but no Joel because she was hung over. So just Steve, just Steve. Okay, we went to a heavy metal show and drank the the fine uh, ales and lagers. Yeah. Did Mercury they... play or what? Because it's a heavy metal and... No. No, Casey. And that was a terrible joke. That was a Carlos joke. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I thought I liked it. They have a Belgian IPA there, and I don't remember what it's called. I wish I did. But it was very good, and I, I had uh, several pints of that. We watched... Um, there was a... a was an, an apocalyptic death metal band. Oh shit! And I was like, apocalyptic. Well, we'll see. And it, and it was awesome. They they fired up the smoke machines and played post apocalyptic death metal. It was pretty cool. That sounds pretty cool. Some groove metal band from Nodak, and uh, yeah, it was fun. But it was that little metal show at the brewery. Always a good time. What about you? You went to... I, uh, yeah. So uh, I am getting ready to fly out to New Zealand uh, tomorrow. Uh, So in preparation to that, like, I've had, like, a busy couple of weeks, um, brew brew and beer-wise. Yeah. So I brewed or made a mead. Um, I got that going last week. That is in the fermenters and... Honestly, in the next for you guys in the next couple of weeks, you'll have you will be hearing about it because it's fermenting while I'm gone. Um, and then I went made my made a run down to St. Louis uh, to uh, visit uh, black belt patron Devin Stinson. I mean, it was mostly to do a diving trip, but we're gonna say it was for Devin. <laughs> It's all about Devin. It's all about Devin, and we <laughs> uh, we went to his uh, his favorite spot, uh, spot. There was OTB Tap House. Ooh, I've been there many times. Yep. Uh, and so yeah, we had some really good uh, St. Louis beers. He sent us uh, home with a couple. We're gonna try one uh, on the show here. Yeah, he knows what old Bry's favorite St. Louis beer he, is. He did. Uh, he did send us with uh, Brian's favorite beer. Yes. Incarnation IPA from Four, four Hands. Yep. Yeah. So we'll be trying that as our commercial calibration yeah. today. Um, and then uh, uh, last, or I guess yesterday, uh, I did a little snowboard morning. 
because uh, cool. uh, we got just dumped on some really nice fresh powder. I went That's out powder. Tuesday night, got and just had had a great time, and I was like, I got a free morning, uh, not ice diving today, so let's uh, let's go hit the slope. So I did that, and then I went into St. Paul uh, and went to Gambit Brewing, which is owned by the guys who did Bobtown. Um, so Bobtown, un- uh, unfortunately, is no more. Uh, it is sold and is now a completely different. Restaurant, uh, bar, no longer a brewery. Wow, I didn't know I'd have gone that far. Yep. Yeah, Bobtown <clears throat> is done, which uh, for long-time they... listeners, uh, you remember Bobtown uh, was Katie's old brewery. Yeah, what are they calling it now? Or what uh, is... It might still be Bobtown Bar and Grill now. I think or... it's, it's got to be that because there's a, a good friend of my archery buddy, James Sanders. Uh, there's a dude named Eric Beal. That it was a, a fixture at that place, and I think I just saw him post something, so they must still be operating under that, just not yep. making beer. But yeah, they're just not making beer anymore. They still have some craft taps, from what I've heard. Yeah, well, it was um, something to do with the the water bill from the city. Yeah, apparently it was just insane. Quadrupled. There's no way. Like, you use an unbelievable amount of water to make beer, mm-hmm. as everybody listening to this either knows or doesn't know but if you don't know now you know yeah what was the, what was the 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 figure it was like seven pints of water to one pint of beer or something something like that it's it's yeah. something outrageous um and i you know i get it you you're cleaning you're constantly spraying water yeah, all over you're chilling you're yeah and i mean and as much as you can recycle with chilling you know it's still There's going only so much through, you can do yeah and then you got to rely on testing the water that goes through the chiller, and it's a big waste of water. Mm-hmm. It just is what it is. Yep. Um, yeah, so I went there and then went and checked out Summit. Uh, I had never been there. I still uh, have never and, been there. Okay, well, we'll have to go, man. For My, as for as, uh, as many breweries I've been to and as many years as I've been drinking Summit. Well, yeah, and that was one of the things, like... Summit is kind of one of my go-tos, like Summit EPA or uh, Summit Pills. Or I drink a lot the, of Saga. Saga's really good. They're There's a great a, northern porter. Yeah. There's like a gas station on the way home from where I live in the middle of nowhere, and I often will stop and get a six-pack of Saga. Uh, yeah, so I went and checked out uh, Summit, and it was fantastic. It was really cool. Um, and then I pitched uh, some lager yeast today. <laughs> In into our, what? <laughs> into our cold tropical barley wine, which is just chugging along. It's uh, it's sitting at about uh, ten twenty right now. Okay. Um, and so maybe we'll get a few more points. Maybe we won't. Uh, hopefully we will. Just a little bit. Um, and that's the that's the tilt reading. So that could be off one way or the other. Yeah. But it's just yeah. So that's that's cool. Like that's chugging. I haven't tasted it yet. I was gonna pull a sample, but I got distracted with a bunch of other stuff. Um, but that's okay. So, uh, Brian, why don't you crack this, pour us some beers, and I will read a little bit about uh, what this beer is, this incarnation. So oh, rise up and, oh, why'd you shake it? I definitely didn't why'd shake it. Why'd you shake it? it? Going on. You were it just throwing, throwing that all around. Carlos! There's uh, some <laughs> uh, paper towels right there, right there, for reasons just like this, Matt. I mean, Brian. Um, <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> it just went everywhere. It did. It did. It wasn't necessarily Brian's fault, but we're going to blame Brian. Jesus. 
All right, so Incarnation, rise up and tantalize your taste buds with our Mosaic Hopped IPA. Incarnation pours a glowing amber hue with a firm color of off-white foam. A subtle malt sweetness provided by pale and caramel malts gives way to loads of pineapple, passion fruit, candied citrus aromas, and flavors in this medium-bodied IPA. So from uh, that description, I'm getting, like, West Coast as kind of yeah where this is going to be at. Um, tap yeah. to this side, okay. I think just over carb or I don't know. Maybe I seriously I didn't mishandle it or anything. No, I know I was. It went in the crack on the table and stripping everywhere. Nah, it's uh, it's not the first time and it's not the last time beer's been spilled on this table. Yeah. <laughs> just soak it up, bud. I'm trying. I well, you just don't. Yeah, don't worry about it too much. All right. All right. Um. Yeah, a little bit of chill haze. I wouldn't call this like hazy haze. No, that's chill haze for sure. Yep, just a little bit of chill haze. Well, and then it's it like it rocketed. Yes. Foam everywhere, so it's probably. Um. Yeah. Uh. Head is just this like tight bubbled, like off white, quickly dissipating. Man, and that is really fresh too. Or at least it tastes fresh to me. Aroma-wise, it's like caramel and fruit. Yeah. That's amazing with the, the, the color of it, that, that there is that sort of caramel. And it is very bitter. Like, almost chalky bitter. Okay, I haven't, I haven't gotten there yet. Oh, got it. Mmm, yeah. It's like that dryness, like... yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, they dried the shit out of this beer. Um, it, like, there's still body, but oh yeah, it it ends. It just like drops off, and there's nothing left. Yeah. Do you know? Do you get? And what there's I like mean? a little like minerally. Yeah, by chalky. Yeah, like mineral chalk. Like it's it's dry. Mm-hmm. Like it's like that uh, seltzer aftertaste almost. Yeah. Now I remember why, why I like this beer so much. <laughs> this is like the most perfect. Yeah, I, man, I, I get I, I get punched like right up front with you're you know what like the whatever the the caramel it's it's like it's like um it's like almost a fruity I'm I'm trying I'm trying like it's it's something that like I'm, I'm like almost like fruit cakey but not like plum or raisin almost yeah it's fruit cake fruit cake yeah. Cause isn't there probably like raisins and shit and fruit cake? Yeah, uh, fruit cake has like pineapple and raisins and, and cherry and like and it's all like dried fruit, gummy fruit things. Yeah, yeah, man, this beer is so crazy. It's very fruit cakey up front. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, like that caramel and like the the, the tropical fruit. Despite what the color looks in this beer, which is kind of straw to golden. If to- you blindfolded me and had me guess what the color was. I would go like a red IPA. Red IPA, for sure. It's This is very interesting. Huh. This is a new style that uh, that we're calling a golden red IPA. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> wow, I can understand why that's uh, one of your favorite uh, IPAs. It's so good. It's really good. It's immensely drinkable. It's not what I expected at all. It's got a lot going on. It threw me. It's not a... Man, that is a very like unusual IPA. 
All right. Should we dive into our discussion topic? Yeah, this is incredibly interesting. And we kind of got down this rabbit hole. I don't want to take credit, but didn't I say something about snow beer a you, while Yeah, back? you talked about snow. So um, I was looking for something interesting to kind of talk about this week and our uh our good friend matt and like uh other like co-host uh, co-host on do other podcasts um is off in east asia doing some stuff and he spent the past like month in japan and that got me thinking about japanese beers and how how that goes uh evening andy uh, thanks for popping in. We're going to read your uh, your listener mail at the end of this episode, so I'm glad you're here. <laughs> nice. Um, <clears throat> but I, I was curious about like the history of Japanese beer, because you think Japan, you think deep history, like tradition. Um, it's it's a country that seems to have a lot of tradition behind it. Well, it's th- they say it's the land of etiquette, right? Yeah. So part of Japan's, part of beer drinking in Japan has like its own... Um, strict etiquette, right? So you should never, you never mess with another person's beer, all right? And you should not, not finishing your beer is alcohol abuse, so no excuses. And, and never fill it from the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I gotta tell you. <laughs> and then the third thing for drinking etiquette, beer, beer drink specifically, beer drinking etiquette in Japan, because I would assume there's different etiquette for whatever. Don't leave your beer unattended. Would you leave your kid alone in a shopping mall? I mean, yeah, I mean, our parents <laughs> did that to us all the time. I was gonna say, <laughs> generation that I was in, we got dropped off at the mall with a ten dollar bill. Anyway, um, and that had to last you all day, yeah, including somehow. the phone call to get like <laughs> somehow. All right, so yeah, um, I I was I was really surprised that. Uh, the history of beer in Japan really only, re- really only goes about back to about 1870. So I guess is they say the Edo period, which I had to look up what the Edo period yep. was, and that was 1603 to 1868. Yeah, so it's first thought to be introduced to Japan in the 17th century. Um, during the Edo period uh, by Dutch traders. During the Edo period, a strict foreign policy known as uh, Sokoku, um, and I apologize for my uh, pronunciation. I wish I had Matt here to fix all of of that, um, established national isolationism in an attempt to shut off foreign influence in Christianity in Japan. So beer didn't really have a foothold. Like, the, the European style of beer, like, there's still fermented beverages in, like, sake and things like that, but we're talking about... Uh, fermented malt beverage or beer. Um, only a few countries, such as the Dutch and or such as uh, the Netherlands and China, officially were officially allowed to enter and trade with Japan until the policy ended in 1854. So you have about 250 years of isolationism in Japan, which is really fascinating. So you don't have a ton of like European influence, or even like uh, influence from other. Uh, Asian cultures, like you don't have a lot of that there, right? Um, and then in 1853, uh, Kumin uh, Kawamoto, uh, a doctor of Dutch medicine, brewed the first beer in Japan, following a description in a Dutch book, at least the first documented beer in Japan. Um, in 1870, an American brewer, William Copeland, established the first brewer, the first commercial brewery in Japan. So Spring Valley Brewery in uh, Yokohama. 
he established that to provide beer to the foreign settlement there. So in certain areas in Japan, they would create what are called foreign settlements where they would allow non-Japanese people to like set up shop. And that was like the only spot they were allowed to um, like own businesses and um, conduct commerce and things like that. Uh, the beer quickly became popular, and the brewery quickly expanded to providing beer for other communities and started doing export. Um, and Spring Valley beer eventually became Kirin, which we know today. Interesting, yeah. Um, and then in 1872, uh, the first Japanese-owned and operated brewery opened in Osaka, uh, Shibutani Beer. The business did not go well and was shuttered uh, by 1881. So about nine years, this one. But during that, it opened, it opened up the floodgates. Uh, in 1876, uh, Hokkaido, uh, Hokkaido uh, Katakushi Beer Brewery, the first brewery under governmental management, was established in Sapporo, uh, Hokkaido. Uh, this brewery would, re- would later rebrand as Sapporo Brewing Company. We all know Sapporo. And then 1889, just a few years after that, the Osaka Beer Brewing Company was founded, which, which would eventually become Asahi Brewing. So the three big um, Japanese breweries that we know about today all started within 40 years of the first beer being brewed in Japan. That's crazy. Right? <clears throat> but yeah, they say the sake brewing predates European contact. Mm-hmm. And in Japan, there's beer and beer-like Beer beverage? Yeah, they have like three different tiers of malt beverages. So one, th- to, for it to be beer, it has to be 50% malt. And that's interesting. So beer-like is haposhu. And that, I think, costs less or it is the way it's, the way that beer is sold, you know, with more, the more malt, the more expensive. So hap- haposhu is translated as a low malt beer. Taxed last uh, appeals to consumer beverages with 25% malt or no malt, and often called the third category beers. So, uh, Daisan or new genre or Shinjaru, Janru. Matt, help us out. In reference to their even lower tax, despite not being, being even labeled as beer. And that's interesting because this dovetailed into what they call the dry senso. Or the Dry Wars, which was a period of yep. intense competition between all these different Japanese breweries to make the driest possible beer. And this was in the late 80s. Yeah, this was 87 to 1990. So if you think about the way that beer was marketed back then and like how it was so gimmicky, like it was all about making a dry beer. I don't know why, just because that's the thing that people were focusing on. Yeah, it so like uh, the Dorai Senso uh, is kind of interesting. So it started with um, Acai Super Dry, right? That was like the first, um, and that launched in 1987. And then Kieran was like, "Oh, we got Kieran Dry and Kieran Malt Dry in '88." And then in '90, like those weren't doing well, so they uh, released uh, Ichiban uh, Sabori Lager. Um, which ended up being a direct competitor as a direct competitor for Aussie Super Dry, but that ended up cannibalizing their own Kieran Dry sales. What the? <laughs> you know what? It's cool. Like one <laughs> one cool factoid, and here's many cool factoids in here. But um, 
which which just lends to Japan Japan being such a fa- fascinating country for many reasons. But this eight, 1988, there was an advertising campaign featuring actor Gene Hackman. That was the I Don't Do Dry campaign, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that, that was Suntory uh, released that. So they, they launched that campaign while simultaneously releasing Suntory Dry. So they were trying to, like, get people to stop buying dry beers, but also releasing their own dry beer. They were, like, hedging their bets. Man. Wild. Yep. Um, and then Sapporo tried to get in on this with Sapporo Dry in 1988, and then they rebranded Sapporo Black Label as Sapporo Draft. To try to give it more of like a like a dry dry name, um, and they did that in 1989, but that only lasted two years when it returned to Sapporo Black Label. So then it says Suntory launched their malts brand in February '88 in the I Don't Do With, Dry yep. campaign, but yeah, and you just said at the same time, you know, blah blah blah, but like they rebranded Suntory Dry 5.5. And they bumped, so they bumped it up half an al- alcohol point. Oh, like Bud Light Premium? Yeah, and then an advertising campaign that featured boxer Mike Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> so that achieves reasonable results for them, and, but not enough to slow down the demand of Asahi Super Dry. Can't stop it. Can't stop, won't stop. So uh, let's, let's, let's roll back the clock uh, about 80 years here. So um, we have we have all these uh, these these brewer- these like early breweries that have been founded, and then uh, the Taisho period happens. The Taisho period in Japan is from 1912 to about 1926. Um, in the Western world, what was ha- what was happening during that time, Brian? 1912. World World War One. Exactly. So. East uh, Germany and East Asian countries were struggling with a shortage of imported beer during that time because a lot of, especially in Germany, a lot of production shifted away from beer and whatnot and went towards guns and war effort. Guns or butter. Guns or butter. Um, Yeah, so Japan was able to step in and fill that gap. That caused rapid and successful growth of the Japanese beer industry because they were doing a ton of exporting during that time because they weren't involved in these conflicts. And then you also had, during that time, you had U.S. prohibition in the 1920s. And so Japan was able to get a lot of cheap brewing equipment imported from surplus... Crazy, yeah. Yeah. All right. And so then you have, like, this influx of new brewing equipment. You have an influx of new breweries and this massive export market. You have an influx of foam from this second can of beer that I opened from this forehand. (laughs) Hey, at least you did it nice and slow this time. (laughs) It's still foaming everywhere. Just slurp the foam off. You just slurp the foam. Just slurp the foam, bud. Slurp your foam. Um, and so that lasted uh, for quite a while until uh, a little uh, a little thing we, we like to call WW2. Wah, wah. Um, yeah, so the industry boom took a massive hit during World War II as the government put restrictions on where alcohol could be served, where alcohol could be sold, um, and fixed the price of alcohol and beer during, uh, during the war. So... No matter how expensive things got or whatever, you had to sell it at X price. Yeah, I'll take a little bit more. All right. Um, after the war, uh, there was you had this period of rebuilding, and in 1949, the distribution uh, control mechanism was abolished, 
which was what they were doing during World War II. Um, and the major brewer, Dainip uh, Pan, was divided into two to avoid excessive concentration of a financial power. Um, and then in 1953, the Japanese Brewers Association, or the Brewers Association of Japan, was established. And so we see this, like, post-war, we're reopening beer halls, we're reestablishing breweries, things are starting to kind of get back to quote-unquote normal, and you're building this culture of beer in Japan that even before the war wasn't really there. This is, it was more sake, it was um, other fermented beverages, but beer wasn't, like, the main thing. Um... Demand for beer, or uh, then in 1959, the minimum quantity of beer manufacturing uh, for a license, for, for a brewing license, was increased. So, what's KL? Is that, that's kiloliter, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, at the time, in order to have a licensed brewery, you had to make a minimum of 1,800 kiloliters a year. And then they bring in, uh, in 1959, they raised that to 2,000. Yeah, I'm like trying to do some math here because I was reading ahead about microbreweries, but um, there's fo- like a standard barrel of beer is what um, thirty one kiloliters. No, thirty one gallons. I'm okay. sorry, I'm trying to work. The oh yeah, yeah. Um, so a one kiloliter is two hundred and sixty four gallons. Okay, so it was just two hundred and sixty four divided by thirty one. <clears throat> which is 8.5. So uh so 2 so 18 or 2000 times 8.5. Yep. Uh where is my calculator? 1000 times 8.5. That's 17,000 barrels. Yeah, it's a lot of beer. <laughs> It's, that's a lot of beer. That's and a it's, lot, a lot of beer. In in order to have a brewery license, that's that's where you at, where you're at. So that's why there's only X amount of breweries in Japan, yeah. right? Yeah. If you, you go big or go home. Yeah. Um. So demand for beer increased rapidly following the advanced economic growth uh, between 1955 and 1965. You know, Andy, you're at your like your imperial imperial measurements. They're terrible, but. You figure out hectoliters from that. I don't know. I don't even know what a hectoliter is. Oh, we don't know what that is. (laughs) It's like, it's a heck of a liter, right? Yep. (laughs) Heck yeah. Why would you heck around? Why would you heck around with liters? Um, So, yeah, if if you know anything about, uh, like, the history of Japan, post-war Japan had this massive economic boom um, in the uh, mid-20th century. Um, from around 1965, the rate of increase in demand for beer gradually dropped off. Under the circumstances, 10 breweries were established nationwide and manufactured, uh, and the manufactured amount doubled over a 10-year period. So they doubled their output from 10 breweries. Like, that's insane. Over 10 years. Um, then in 87, we had the Dorai Sensor, the Dry Wars. And then the biggest thing that happened in recent uh, beer culture in Japan was in 94, the minimum quantity of beer manufacturing license for a brewery was decreased. They dropped it from 2,000 uh, kiloliters to 60, which is a much more manageable number. 60,000. So <clears throat> 60,000 barrels. 
Yeah, a year. Which, what? No, wait, no. Wait. That sixty thousand liters. Sixty thousand liters. So that's fi- fifteen thousand eight hundred and fifty gallons per year. So if you do the barrel, it's sixty-eight barrels a year. Which that's way, way, way that's smaller. Really easy. You could set up a one-gallon system and and get one and, barrel system. Or I'm sorry, one barrel system and get and get there. Just brew sixty-eight times. Just brew every week. God, man, Andy's giving Is he giving going us on a tear math over there. Yeah, oh, he's God. like All a right, hectoliter is a hundred liters or point one kiloliters. Read the yeah, read it. What is this base ten nonsense? Ugh. Just like that's ableism <laughs> is what that is. You think we all have ten fingers? Yeah. I mean, we in this room we do, mm-hmm. but but not everybody <laughs> does. <laughs> uh, but that uh, as as a result of that drop, many small regional uh, breweries and microbreweries and brew pubs were uh, were created. So we went from ten major breweries in into in Japan to now there's more than two hundred microbreweries. Which, over 30 years, it's not quite the boom that we saw here in the U.S., but there's also not as much space there as there is in the U.S., and it's not as crazy. Also, homebrewing is technically still illegal in Japan. Oh, really? Yeah. uh, Legally, you're not allowed to ferment anything to over uh, more than 1% alcohol. So just kombucha. Pretty much. Kombucho. But there is a small and thriving uh, homebrew scene in Japan. So uh, that's interesting. Wow. The legal drinking age in Japan is 20. Mm-hmm. So in terms of drinking culture, beer drinking and opening formal toasts with beer as a part of a group, sports team or after work, corporate social bonding activity is widespread. Beer is a big deal in Japan. Can legally be consumed anywhere in public with notable exceptions for organized events, summer festivals, spring cherry blossom parties, blah, blah. Interesting. Strict laws against operating a motor vehicle <laughs> or riding bicycle. Fines, prison time, etc. Interesting. Yeah, so a lot of the same, uh, same rules as like in Europe and here. Um, just older drinking age like the U.S., um, and I wonder if that has a lot to do with U.S. influence or if it's just kind of... I mean, this just seems responsible. To 20? Oh, to 20? I don't know. I mean, 20 like, is old. Yeah. 21 is stupid. Uh, says that homebrewing supplies are available from high street stores and websites. But yeah, it's also like it's yeah. It it was fascinating. It was really cool to do this deep dive into uh, the history of beer in Japan. I learned a lot. I thought it was very interesting. Anything you'd like to add on that? No. Now I'm looking up Japanese homebrew stores. Right. <laughs> I want to know more about their homebrewing ingredients. Yes. All right. Well, we have some listener mail. Listener mail. You got to do a stinger or something for that, man. I know. We've talked about it. It's a whole. Well, thing. chop chop. You're, uh, you know, when you come back. All right. Well, this is from Andy. Uh, evening, Casey, and I apologize for this. Core blimey, God bless you, Governor Brian. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Can you do? Can you do it again? <laughs> I don't know if I can. Uh, yeah, that made my freaking day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> God blimey, God bless you, Governor Brian. Wow. 
<laughs> what is that first? Corblimey. Corblimey. What does that even mean? I don't know. I gotta look that up. I don't know. <laughs> this is what he put in here. Well, hello. Um, hello to you, sir. <laughs> I've just completed a brew day that I never want to repeat ever. As well as uh, as is well established, Pilsner Requel is my if you could only drink one beer till you die beer. I attempted to make a rough approximation of one today. Online research led me to believe that a large part of its unique flavor comes from it being uh, triple decocted. So I went ahead and did a decoction mash. It was a royal pain in the arse. We did that by accident. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of. It took hours, used God knows how much extra gas and electric, and I burned my hand uh, splashing (laughs) boiled mash back into the Brusilla. My question to you guys, is there anything I can add or a sneaky workaround to achieve a decocted effect without actually having to do one? Cheers, Andy. Uh, P.S. I completely take back my suggestion of adding triple decocted to a third roll for style. <laughs> Thank you. Backpedaling. <laughs> <laughs> I looked up core blimey, and it's just an exclamatory, which is awesome. And thank you for um, just for sending that. <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> uh, yeah. So what? So with. A decoction mash. We're trying to get. Yeah, what are we trying to achieve with a decoction mash? Like, first of all, yeah, which is what more melanoidin or yeah. So I think a really easy way to add that would be melanoidin malt. Just off the yeah, top of my head, I mean that's about all I could think of. It, it just like, I mean, in a, in a pinch, like if you can't get melanoidin or if melanoidin is impractical. Um, I mean, like, what's the closest thing you can think of to melanoidin malt? Would be Munich. Yeah. Right? Or like a biscuit maybe? Something like that. Um, yeah, fiddle fiddle around with just small amounts of that in a Pilsner. Um, you could also just do like a longer boil. Yeah, for a little kettle carm. I mean, that, that might work. Um, um, so the reason they did decoction mashes was to get better yield out of the grain. Now that grain is so heavily modified, we don't really have to do a decoction mash. Yeah, I mean, with how modified that, which is crazy because that happened quickly. Because I remember, you know, decoction mashes in the early 2000s, and I don't know if grain was so. I don't, well, (laughs) we've had this discussion about decoction mashing a lot. Is it necessary? Do you get a big flavor boost from it? And everything we've, like, we've read, we've researched, it's been kind of undetermined. Um, A lot of people decoct because. That's how people always did it. Um, and I, like, they didn't... Mi- so I took the Pilsner Urquell tour this uh, this this past fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't talk about decoction mashing during the thing. They didn't talk about a lot of the brewing process during during the tour. It was kind of corporate But I did get a drink, Pilsner Urquell, uh, like, young and from the, from the casks. And that was kind of neat, but... And it was also uh, Pilsner Fest that day. Oh, geez. Well, all right. So, <clears throat> again, we're what are we trying to get? We're trying to get some color, trying to get a little bit more clarity kind of in the finished beer, too, because of the protein rest. Yeah, but, you, yeah, I guess, yeah, you're decocting to hit your rest. So here's here, here's the recipe. Do you want the recipe? Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, five and a half uh, kilo. Oh, he did the the poundage stuff. We're just gonna do it in grams and kilograms because he did the he did the conversion for us. Oh, 
That's really nice. Of him. It was very nice of him. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. twelve point one two five pounds. Pounds of best malts pilsner, five and a half kilograms. Uh, forty grams of saws at sixty. Forty grams at thirty. Thirty grams at ten. And 30 grams at flame out. He did an acid rest at 35 Celsius or 95 Fahrenheit for 30 minutes, then did the first decoction. The next rest at 52 degrees uh, C for 30 minutes, then the second decoction. Beta rest at 64 C for 30 minutes, and then the third decoction. Alpha rest at 30 minutes at 70 C. Mash out at 75 C for 10 minutes, then a 90 minute boil. And he did all that. <laughs> if he hadn't burned himself, I would have been like, <laughs> wait, nothing went wrong? <laughs> I don't know if I believe you. <laughs> um, yeah, man, I don't. So, one thing you could do instead of doing the decoction, if you still want to do all the steps, you have a Bruzilla just program in your temperature set test. Yeah, that. Like, or, or, again, Go sparingly on higher lava bomb malts, or like a, yeah, you know what I mean. Use like, a little, use a little melanoid, and use a little uh, Munich. Use a little. Well, yeah, just like our our rule of thumb for using, uh, like just tiny bit, like handful of dark malt will get you a long way, especially with something like this. But I don't know, find find, Bre- find a breeze ten L, find a twenty or a thirty. He's in the UK. Okay. Uh, so, so Simpsons, right? So then Simpsons, like ten. I don't think they even. No, they just do make a ten, twenty yeah. or twenty or thirty, and just do like a handful of each and layer them. We're talking about layering melanoidin flavor, and yeah, like what I already said, Munich or biscuit is probably the way to go. Yeah, but weigh it. Don't just use your hand. <laughs> um, <laughs> I could just cast my hand, and then we could market those, and then you know, old Bry's got. Ah, uh, yes, an old bry cup. Old bry cup. How many old bry cups to a liter? S- several. <laughs> <laughs> I know Devin would buy it. It's a leaky old bry cup. You have to do it fast. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, I you know honestly, Andy, like I am, I'm. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm blown away that you went to all this trouble. Um, I'm sorry. Well, yeah, I mean that too. Me too. But I'm I'm sure that this beer will taste excellent. Yeah, and now you never have to do a decoction again. Yep, because he, he did it. He already did it. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, great, another U.S. measurement. <laughs> yep. <laughs> An old bry handful. Good, you know, a little bit goes a long way. <laughs> All right. I don't really have a ton more to add to that. Should we get out of here? Mm-hmm. Eh, yeah, we're about forty minutes here. That was a fun topic, though. It was. I enjoyed it. All right, guys, if you have any questions, comments, show ideas, or what have you, go ahead and shoot us an email at feedback at blindindustudios.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash blindindustudios or follow us on Instagram at blindindustudios. And I'll see you guys next week. Peace.